Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence, and I am now joined by former federal prosecutor and CNN senior legal analyst, Laura Coates, who also happens to be the author of a new book, Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. Welcome in, Laura. I'm so glad I'm here. Thank you, Adrian, for having me. Yes, thanks for joining us, especially since it is the one week anniversary of your book launch. Congrats. Thank you, it's, it's, it's flown by, but as you know, it's a labor of love to write it. And so having the baby out in the world is really surreal. Yes, I bet it is, especially right now. And I know you have a very impressive background in terms of your credentials, also a wealth of experience and knowledge as being a prosecutor and being in the justice system and you know providing those hard hitting facts on CNN. You know, but I really am wondering what inspired you to share a lot of your story and your journey with Just Pursuit? You know, it is deeply personal and I thank you for all the compliments and they're right back at you as well, Adrian. And I gotta tell you, I think people expect me to write a book and really all lawyers, right? To write a book that is a legal textbook you'd find in a law school classroom. Esoteric, very highbrow, the idea of thinking about a Supreme Court case and then figuring out how it's contextually a part of our universe. But I really wanted to make sure that it was a deeply personal narrative memoir where we personified what the issues we're all talking about. And I think that storytelling is the most compelling form of information. It's one in which people can see themselves in it. They can vicariously experience. I often talk about as part of my career, what the law is and how it's interpreted. But I want people to understand what the law feels like and what justice is and what it is not. So that when they speak truth to power, they actually know what the truth is. Wow, that is a very powerful thing, uh, you know, especially being a part of the legal system and knowing how it should work. And so to make this accessible to all and also to have that storytelling angle is such an incredibly just impactful thing. And I know that Just Pursuit isn't just about storytelling, that it also has an edge of activism in it. And so if you could tell me, what can readers really take away with them from reading Just Pursuit? Well, I think that education is a form of activism. I really believe that when people have and are privy to information, and I mean true information and allowing you to see the facts as they unfold. So often in our society, we've got things that are objectively true that become Rorschach tests and people will see what they want to see. And I think it's important for people's perspectives but I also want people to understand that if you have the information, if you understand that in often way, in a lot of ways, our legal system is striving to be a justice system. It's more legal, however, than just in many arenas. And while there are extraordinary moments of triumph and humanity, they are often overshadowed by the fact that the pursuit of justice can actually increase and also create injustice. And I want people to understand what that looks like. And I think in our own individual lives, we all battle our own personal battles of allegiance where we don't have the luxury, I know I don't, of walking into a room, be it a courtroom or a boardroom and shedding facets of my identity. I bring them with me. I bring my lived experience as a black woman, as a wife, as a mother, as a human being, as a student of history. And I bring that with me to better inform the choices that I would make in the courtroom. And it didn't make it easy, but it made it such that I knew that I was pursuing fairness and fighting for fairness. And sometimes my moral compass pointed in one direction and our laws point in a different direction. And people have to reconcile that chasm and figure out what we want America to be on paper and in reality. 
Yes, absolutely. And uh, being a lawyer myself, I understand those situations yes. where essentially, you know, your moral compass may go one way, but the law goes another way. And it is something you have to reconcile within yourself. And also in recognizing as being a part of the criminal justice system, knowing that it is laden with bias and it's not as fair and as just as essentially uh, our founding fathers would have wanted it to be, so to speak. But I meant it to be. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, it. wanted it to be, yes. <laughs> it's definitely for some of us. And so I was wondering at kind of what moment did you have that awakening or that experience where you realized, hey, this this is gonna be very difficult and this is gonna be challenging at times. You know, I write about in the book that there was a transition from being a civil rights attorney in the civil rights division of the Department of Justice and working on voting rights. And it was a foregone conclusion, conclusion, excuse me, that I was a champion of the people, so to speak, those who had been marginalized, those whose civil rights had been infringed. And your question of allegiance just was not there. But then going under that same umbrella of the Department of Justice and now being a criminal prosecutor. It was a very different experience of how people perceived me. Although my victims were overwhelmingly black and brown, because the defendants were also black and brown, it seemed as though I was being challenged as to whose side I was really on. And the stark contrast between my you know, profession of the civil rights and what I wanted to have happen and my role being a person and black woman that people get the man to be in, so to speak. And that's a very jarring experience from day one. When and I compare it in many respects, Adrian, to knowing something and then understanding it. You know what disproportionate impact is conceptually. You know what disparate impact is. You know about mass incarceration. You know all these things. But then it's like sitting on a train platform and you know the power of a locomotive, you know its ferocity, you know the pistons will fire and you know that the strength it will bring. But when you're on that platform and all of a sudden it whizzes past you and you can feel in that instant what makes you wanna take a step back and say, my God, now I understand the force I'm dealing with. That's what it was like going from the civil rights division and understanding the law from a intellectual perch in some respects and then experiencing what injustice looks like in the criminal context. It was jarring, but it's an eye-opening experience I bring the reader along with. Yes, wow, that sounds like a hell of a journey. Particularly, as you mentioned, being a black woman and seeing how the system can be unjust to people who look like us and wondering what side am I on? And also knowing that the system has its essentially broken elements and how they impact people. I'm guessing it can be a lot, especially when you still know maybe that individual did commit a crime and they hurt someone. And thus you still have an obligation to seek justice. And if you could talk a little bit about that journey, that would be really impactful. You know, I think people have the understanding that justice is really binary, right? It's either a conviction or an acquittal, and that's somehow a destination. When in reality, there's so many aspects of this ecosystem of justice in America. And just in the idea that there's this fallacy that you can be civil rights oriented in only one position in a courtroom or that black and brown people are only entitled to be in certain roles within the justice system, either a defendant or a defense counsel. When in reality, we need to be in every area of the justice touches from police officers to the bench, to policymakers, to prosecutors, to defense counsel. We don't have a monopoly on crime, but when you see the way in which crimes are policed and of course prosecuted, it really requires us to have a deeper understanding and make them think about it. I upheld my oath and I 
feel overwhelmingly proud that I was given the opportunity to speak on behalf of the United States. But when I stood up and said Laura Coates on behalf of the people of the United States, that necessarily included the defendant. And that can be jarring to people to understand that you're not, it's not an us versus them. And I had every responsibility to protect that person's constitutional rights, to bring with the prosecution a healthy skepticism that questions what a police officer has said, whether the facts in fact will, will pan out to meet my burden of proof. And if we're just resting on our laurels, and being the beneficiary of the kinds of benefits of doubt that are given to us as agents of the government or as law members of law enforcement, we do a disservice. We do a disservice to the communities that are that are victimized, those that are prosecuted, and ultimately the people of the United States. And so all of that really comes into play when I think about the tension between knowing what your oath is and also knowing that it's the people of the United States and who that must necessarily include. Yes, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's part of the journey that we have. You go to law school, you pass the bar, you take an oath. And when you take that wholeheartedly uh, and you do not essentially, you don't let it waver in any way. It is something that just essentially it helps you navigate the system and also perform your duties and your job. And so turning to your job, now as largely this icon in the media dealing with the traumas of the news cycle on that legal edge and angle. But also being a black woman and a mother and being an attorney, it can be a lot, especially during times where we have this social upheaval and we have these essentially new era, new beginnings, George Floyd, these conversations, these situations we're seeing more and more. How are you navigating the system knowing how it should work? And still being able to essentially do your job as a wife, a mother, and also as a legal analyst. Well, first, I'm tickled that the word icon was in the same as my own name. I, I certainly am not in that category, but I do really appreciate the sentiment. And I thank you so much for saying that. I don't know that I always do it well in terms of the balancing act that we must all play. And I think that compartmentalizing is something that I um, sometimes grapple with because there's a sense of armor that one must have not to allow everything to penetrate. And I would not be a human being if I told you that I can hear or watch the trials or I can receive and process information like what happened to Elijah McClain, a young black man just walking from the store to be given ketamine and then rendered brain dead. Me having these conversations and not feeling it in my soul or watching over and over again as I'm commenting on the trial of Derek Chauvin, the murder of a man before our very eyes. And it, it does get to me. But I think to myself, perhaps selfishly, because of the different facets of my identity as a mother, as a human being, as a daughter, as a wife of a black man, I think to myself, um, I would like to educate as a form of activism so that my own children don't experience what I am talking about. The conversations that I'm having with the country about what the law means and its interpretation, that these are ways in which we can avoid past being prologue. And I think it's a really important notion to have realized that I'm a human being and there I am fallible as anyone else. But if we take the opportunity to really educate ourselves, to peel back the curtains that so often protect the status quo and illuminate these issues, we will be in a better place. And I keep wondering, Adrian, you know, right now we pursue justice. What if one day we actually catch it? Then what a country we would really be. 
Indeed, we would be. Oh, wow, just even the thought of that. Uh, but I know that we are going to be all the better better for having your uh, your instruction to having your word and sharing your voice. Uh, and everybody definitely go out there, pick up Just Pursuit, a black prosecutor's fight for fairness. It's available everywhere books are sold. And is there anywhere people should follow you or get more information, Laura? You can always follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Coates, And you can always listen to my daily SiriusXM POTUS show as well. Weekdays, 3 to 6 p.m., you know, in my free time. <laughs> I never stop talking, Adrian. I never stop talking. So I'm glad to be with you and I'm proud of the work you're doing, sis. And congratulations to you as well. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you for joining us, for sharing your written word with this world and also for never stopping talking. We appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome back to TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And now I am joined by education activist, Naomi Pena, who is also the president of District One Community Education Council there in New York City. And she's the co-founder of the Literacy Academy Collection. Thanks so much for joining us, Naomi. Thank you for having me, Adrian. Yes, so for Literacy Academy Collection, I understand it's an organization that really designs and supports New York City public schools to bring evidence-based literacy instruction into the classroom. And that you all currently are working on essentially creating among one of the first schools in New York City that really specializes in educating students with dyslexia. What encouraged you to essentially move forward with something this ambitious? Um, that's right. This actually came um, from many personal experiences. Um, I am one of six, a t- you know, a fierce team uh, mom mom group, and every single one of us have had a child uh, with dyslexia. I myself um, have four children. My three boys are dyslexic. It's a hereditary condition, um, and you know, unfortunately, in this country, and over the last couple of decades, we have moved towards what they call balanced literacy approach. Meaning you look at the picture, you look at the words, you kind of figure out what's going on, not really sounding out the letters. Um, So what we wanna do is bring structural literacy, science-based approach where you are literally learning the phonetic letters to every single word um, and bringing that together, which is scientifically proven to help every single learner, not just students with dyslexia or that struggle to read. Wow, and I would think that a lot of people don't really understand how prevalent dyslexia is. And I know some academics really estimate it that it's between 10 to 20% of students have dyslexia. And so it seems to be a significant need out there. Would you say that that's correct in terms of having a school that focuses on this type of learning that can actually be pretty impactful in terms of a student, especially if they have dyslexia? Absolutely. Um, you know, right now there are schools that do this. Unfortunately, it's out of reach for the vast majority. These are private institutions that cost a significant amount of money, um, and those are resources that is not accessible to the average person who is living, you know, living by a livable wage. So, you know, if you are a struggling parent or you know, low wage worker, it's hard to look at a tuition that costs $75,000 a year to educate your child to read. So what we're trying to do is turn the system upside down on its head where you don't need um, a, an expensive neuropsychological that can run you up to 10 grand. You don't need to hire an attorney to sue the Department of Education um, for a lawsuit to reimburse you for those funds. All you have to do is just have a child that's struggling to read. We can bring them into our school and we can support that child. 
Wow, that sounds like it would be essentially life changing for a lot of people out there, especially individuals who are dyslexic and who are young. As I understand in an exchange that you and I had in our DMs on Twitter, you had shared a post that said in Rikers Island, 60 to 80% of those who are incarcerated between the ages of 19 and 21 have reading and writing disabilities. And that just, that shook me. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's you have to also think about it from a lens of, um, in my own personal experience, my child struggled the whole. My my oldest, particularly, he's twenty one. He struggled his whole entire educational career. He's never felt like he belonged in the classroom. He's always he always felt chastised, always made fun of. He always felt like his teachers never supported him. So as a young man, especially a young man of color in this country, once you start having those feeling those things. You start to lose and disengage in school, um, and it's it's no coincidence that you know once high school comes around, the need to want to be in a classroom dissipates because why would you want to be in a classroom where you cannot literally read the words on the paper? Um, there's a lot of nuances out there that it's it's you know oh it's reversing B and Ds. It's not absolutely not. It's literally you people have said that they use, there's there's a um, you can look it up. Um, you can search dyslexia simulator and you will see there was a github that was created where the words literally dance around the screen so if if you're struggling to read that way you're not going to want to stay in school and unfortunately in this country what that means is men of color tend to fall into unfortunate situations that lead them into prison yeah, and as especially we know and we've seen, uh, being at Rikers is not a place where anyone should be. Uh, but that's a whole different show and a whole different conversation. Sure. But still, if there's something that can be done in route to actually ending up through that, you know, uh, school prison pipeline thing, that's important to be done. And so, being able to offer individuals who maybe are from lower incomes or uh, different demographics the opportunity to have that same access at the educational level is huge. And so, I'd love to talk a little bit about what you all are doing. Doing. So right now in terms of trying to get this school started, and as I understand, they were able to get one on Staten Island. But now in terms of getting one, I don't know if are you focusing on Manhattan, Brooklyn, the Bronx? So right, that school on Staten Island is actually a charter school. Um, so it's not, but you know, those are, it's an institution that we started to work closely with. Just you know, talking about how they started, what, what was the hiccups, what's the road. Our vision at Literacy Academy Collective is literally to create a network of schools that can do this. So we were waiting for an approval where we can be cited. We can be cited anywhere in the city. But the vision is literally it's it's multi multifaceted. So we want to create a lighthouse a lighthouse school in the city, build it out, train teachers because there's another key component to this is the teacher training. Unfortunately, um, higher educational institutions are not um, teaching dyslexia or how to, how to teach evidence-based reading to students. So we wanna do some teacher training and then build out that school and then roll it out across the city in different boroughs. And at the same time, create a network of pipeline of teachers who are, they will do a residency in our school for a couple of years. So they'll get a teacher training, do some hands-on work, and then they'll go back to their district schools and bring that back into the ecosystem in their district schools. So it'll be a revolving door of supports. Oh, that's fantastic, especially you know spreading those skills so people can be on the ground and truly be impactful with their knowledge base. That's that's amazing. And so I'm wondering what kind of hurdles have you run into so far in terms of getting this project together? 
you know, it, the first hurdle is the will um, and it's the desire. The unfortunate um, truth is that the prior administration had no desire or, or honest, you know, probably any vision to really tackle this. Um, we do see that there is a prime opportunity with the current administration that we have in New York City with Mayor Eric Adams, who has made this part of his campaign um, promise that he wants to do this. Um, we have met with him when he was a candidate, so he knows that we exist. Um, we also have met with the chancellor, he knows that we exist. Um, and they've been super eager to do this. So there is a good, good, good light at that tunnel that we will get some good news soon. That's fantastic. That would be very good, especially because I know he's doing uh, several things with Rikers that uh, a lot of people are not the biggest fans of. And so actually addressing this issue, which could actually reduce the potential population of individuals going to Rikers would be great. And when we talk about dyslexia, something that uh, was just absolutely eye opening for me is not realizing how many people struggle with it. And especially when we look at that celebrity level, seeing that Steven Spielberg, Whoopi Goldberg, Tom Cruise, Richard Bronson, Kiera Knightley. There are so many names that people see as being successful. And you have to think if that person was struggling with the ability to read and understanding literacy, it just makes me commend them even more. But it makes me think that they probably had the support to essentially get where they are. Absolutely, you know that I, I I bring this down to a granular level. Um, this is personal to me. I'm a proud product of New York City public housing, um, and I and I think of those families that are in those um, residents that don't have the means, like I said, to drop ten thousand dollars for a neuropsychological, you know, five thousand dollars for an attorney. You know, seventy-five thousand dollars upwards for annual school tuition. Um, they they were able, those celebrities were able to get tutors, um, and those are just things that are not accessible to the average family of color or low income of color. You know, income worker. So it's really important to even out the playing field here and to really give equal access. And that's the vision that we have for our school to finally, again, turn the pyramid upside down and allow people to use the system to the benefit of their child so they can actually get the supports that they need. And you know, we can start reversing the unfortunate pipeline that exists currently. Yes, everybody should have a right to definitely access education, literacy, and to have the opportunity to essentially make the most of themselves. And so being able to have the funding, the support that you all need to get this school together. I guess, what can you tell people in terms of lending their support and uplifting the Literacy Academy collection? Well, I would say definitely check us out online. We have our social medias. Literacy Acad NYC, it's <laughs> abbreviated. Um, they can also follow me on Twitter, Naomi Pena NYC. Um, I the vision is is to really create a system where if we can do this in New York, we can do this nationally um, because this is not just a New York City problem. This is a U- USA problem. Um, the children that cannot read in public housing are the same children that cannot read, you know, in Wisconsin on a farm. Mm-hmm. So there is a place that this can exist and this can be revolutionary for the entire country if we do this right. Yes, and that would be an incredible thing. And I commend you so much for all of the good work you're doing. And I will definitely explain to people why I was in your DMs, which is that Naomi and I have known each other for which is shy of maybe 20 years. We used to work together at the US Attorney's Office in New York City. But we wear it well. 
<laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Oh man, so many great things. And so Naomi, in terms of, I guess, um, what's next? Um, what is next for you as the president of District One Community Education Council, also the co-founder of the Literacy Academy Collection, and all that you're doing as an education activist? Um, I would say we are going to continue to push and advocate to have the school exist. Um, we're also, you know, we are, we do have an SSO, a school support organization, open, which is the uh, Literacy Academy Collective, and the vision is there to create a nonprofit to also support um, this vision and this training across other places, be it in New York City district schools or, you know, in other places. So this is like a prime place that people who are really passionate about this can finally find a home. You know, I I do envision all those celebrities that you mentioned being this is exciting. I want to support this in any way um, because this is exactly the type of giving back that we need, um, not just for you know to make your soul feel good, but also for our future. Excellent. Thank you so much, Naomi, for all of your work and also for joining us. Thank you.